The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Now, our last study, we looked at Psalm 82, talking about the judgment of the gods. And I received several questions about the fact that Yeshua quoted this psalm in John 10. So this morning we're going to look at Yeshua's quote of this psalm and try to see if we can figure out what this means and how does it fit in with what this psalm is teaching. Now, before we look at these verses, let me give you a little context here. The literary structure of John 10, 23-39, is built around two basic questions dealing with the identity of Yeshua. Verse 24 asks whether Yeshua is the Messiah. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And then in verses 25 through 30 contains Yeshua's response to this. And then in verse 33 raises the question of whether Yeshua makes himself out to be God. John 10, 33, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then in verses 34 through 38, we get Yeshua's response to that. And then in the final chapter, I mean, the end of the chapter, verses 40 to 42, uh, provide Lazarus' summary to this section on Yeshua's ministry. Now, this section is strongly Christological. The focus of this section is Yeshua's deity. And... I need to remind you here, context is king when it comes to interpretation, all right? And the context here is Yeshua's deity. Please, you got to keep that in mind as we go through this text. That's the, the main thing you have to hang on. He's arguing for his deity. And here's the question I'll put in your mind to start with, and hopefully we'll wrap this up understanding this, but how could Yeshua defend his deity from this psalm if this psalm is talking about human judges? Remember, he's using this psalm, quoting this psalm in verse 6 to defend his deity. That makes no sense if these are human judges. Now, Yeshua concluded his discourse on the shepherd-sheep analogy with the statement, I and the Father are one. Now, four times in this text, Yeshua is called God my Father, thus making himself equal with God, just as he did in John 5, 17 and 18. Not only has he described the security of believers have in his hand in the same terms that he describes the security of the sheep have in his father's hand. So they're safe in my father's hand, they're safe in my hand. He also comes straight out and expresses equality, unity, and identity with God in terms that really can't be misconstrued. He says, I and the Father are one. Now notice the Jews' reaction to this. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So he says, hey, I and the Father are one, and we're going to kill you. You can't say that stuff. All right, the the word picked here is bastazo in the Greek. It means to carry stones. So they went and grabbed a bunch of stones. They said, we'll stop this guy from saying stuff like this. They want to kill him because he's claiming to be God. They get that. So you have to get that. That's the problem. He is claiming to be God. That's the issue here, all right? Verse 32, Yeshua answered them, I've shown you many good works 
from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? So Yeshua here is not denying his claims to be God. He's seeking to show his adversaries that his works give substance to his words. He claims to be God while doing works that only God can do. He's giving sight to the blind. Only God can do that. So he said, look at my works. He's also seeking clarification here. Why exactly are you going to stone me? Hold on a second before you start throwing rocks. Tell me, why are you going to stone me? And the Jews tell him exactly why they want him dead in verse 33. The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're stoning you. In other words, you're, you're raising the dead, you're giving sight to the blind, you're healing the lame. That's not what we want to kill you, okay? We want to kill you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, with the stuff he was doing, it's kind of foolish to say just being a man. Men don't do those kind of things. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy. Because they said, you're just a man, but you're claiming to be God. So the Jews understood Yeshua to be saying that he's God, and they interpret his words as blasphemy. Now, from their perspective, he spoke blasphemy because he's just a man. He can't be claiming to be God. And the punishment for blasphemy under the Sinai covenant is death by stoning. So that's why they picked up stones. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So if Yeshua was not really claiming to be God, he could have easily corrected the Jews' misunderstanding here, but he didn't. And I think that's proof that the Jews correctly understood that he was claiming to be God. Very clearly. So the Jews say that Yeshua has committed blasphemy, because being a mere man, he makes himself out to be God. And then Yeshua responds to them. He answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods? So, again, keep in mind with the context here. In order to defend his deity, that's the focus of this section, he says, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. So whatever our interpretation of this quotation from Psalm 82 is, it has to reinforce Yeshua's claim to be God. That's what he's trying to defend here. He equates to be God. He says it in John 10.30 and 10.38. Now some commentators want to make a big deal out of the word your here, but this word is omitted in many of the manuscripts. The early manuscripts has, is it not written in the scriptures, the law? Now, when you hear the word law, most often we think of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of Moses. But it is used other times to refer to the entire Tanakh. So we can't always, so he said law, so they have to, that has to be in the first five books. That's not really how it works, okay? We know that Yeshua is quoting Psalm 82, 6 here. There's no question about that, all right? But that's not in the first five books, okay? Similar usage is found in John 15, 25. It says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. This is from Psalm 69.4, and he calls it again the law. So by law, he just means the Scripture. It's written in your Scripture. I said you are gods, and that's the quote from Psalm 82.6. Now what we have to figure out here is who is the I, and who is he calling gods? Well, the I in the Psalm is Yahweh. Yahweh is saying you are gods. The big question is, who is he calling gods? Now, if you do a study on John 10.34 or on Psalm 82, 
you're going to quickly find out that the majority of commentators, scholars, preachers, do not believe in divine plurality. They do not believe in a divine council. They do not believe there are other gods. There's only Yahweh. And they see Psalm 82 as speaking to men who Yahweh calls gods. Now, the predominant view of Psalm 82 is that he's talking about Yahweh judging Israel's leaders, Israel's judges. That's the predominant view. And that view is helped by uh, bad translations. As I said last week, bad translations really support this view because they, they take the word Elohim and they translate it Judges. And they're like, that, that's never a translation of Elohim. But if you read in your Bible and that's what it says, then you get that planted in your head. It never should be translated Judges. There is no justification for translating Elohim as Judges, none. Now, we spent some time on this last week in our study. Elohim is never used of humans unless, what? They're dead, because when they're dead, they're in the spirit realm, okay? Elohim is a place of residence locator. When you see Elohim, it's talking about somebody in the spirit world, not a human. All Elohim live in the spirit world, and there's never a time in Scripture where a man is called Elohim. This is important because it makes it clear that Psalm 82 is talking about gods, not talking about men. Now, despite the clear evidence of divine plurality that we looked at last week, and hopefully you understand, we went over and over a bunch of scriptures dealing with this idea. Elohim is never used of a man in the scriptures. But still, the majority of commentators, scholars, and preachers see Psalm 82 as referring to Yeshua's judgment on human beings. And this is because they, they deny divine plurality. Now listen, if you deny divine plurality, the only choice is they're talking about humans. Because what else is there? So that's your only choice. So if you deny that, then you have to say, well, this somehow, and it's really a convoluted argument because you're having trouble understanding how, he, how does he do this in Psalm? Why does he call them gods if they're judges? He's not, but you're denying plurality, so you've got to figure it out some way. Well, hopefully from our last study, you see that the Bible does teach very clearly divine plurality. Now, let me bring in something here. If we think of the Jews, we think of them as, people will say the Jews are monotheistic, right? What does monotheism mean? It's a belief that there is one God, right? The, the, but here's the problem. The Jews believed in other gods, okay? So how do we call them monotheistic? They, do, they don't just believe in one God, they believe in other gods. Look at the first commandment. I think it clearly implies... There's other gods. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now listen, there is no other gods, but don't have them before me. Okay? Uh, what does he say? Don't have nothing before me. Why would he say this? This is the very first commandment he gives in the Decalogue. Let me tell you people, don't put any other gods before me. Because the other nations were worshiping all kinds of different gods. Okay, Remember when he's saying this, they had just come out of Egypt. Egypt had a plurality of gods. They worshipped the frog god. They worshipped all kinds of gods, all right? So he's telling them, listen, I'm your god. That's it. You don't have any other gods before me. Now, most mainstream, most Old Testament scholars believe that the religion of the early Israelites was not monotheistic, and it wasn't polytheistic. It was monolatrous. 
And monolatry is the belief in the existence of many gods, but with the consistent worship of only one. Now that fits way better with the Israelites, okay? The Jews were monolatrous, not monotheistic. They knew there were many gods. They worshipped one. One God only. Look at Exodus 22.20. Whoever sacrifices to any other god that doesn't exist, other than Yahweh alone, shall be devoted to destruction. Why do you give commandments like this if there's no other gods? It doesn't make much sense. So they believed in many gods, but they worshipped one. One God who exists in three persons, the Trinity. Now, despite this, most people today deny, deny divine plurality. Most people just do not believe in it, okay? I didn't believe in it myself until, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, until Jeff messed me up. So if you've got a problem with this teaching, just talk to Jeff, okay? He started it. He's the one that put us, put us all on this track, all right? <laughs> That's amazing how, how blind you can be to something that's in the Scriptures that you read and read and read and you never get it. You just don't get it. Until someone says something, and oh man, that makes sense. Like someone says, hey, the Lord says soon, quickly, shortly. He really meant that. What? That's a unique idea. Dr. Thomas Constable writes this. The identity of the people whom God addresses in, as gods in Psalm 82.6 is debatable. Okay. It is debatable. Let's debate it. The most popular and probable view is that they were Israel's judges who were functioning as God's representatives and so were, in the sense, little gods. All right, now get what he's saying here, okay? He, he understands there's another view. It's debatable, but he thinks that he's talking to Israel's judges because they're functioning in this role of judge, so that makes them little gods. So if you serve God, you're a little god. I mean, it's just... Who was it that functioned as God's representative in the Old Covenant? Old Covenant Israel was a theocracy. A theocracy is a government ruled by God. Not symbolically, not metaphorically, God actually ruled over the people. Now if you go to Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 18.22, it tells us that there were three theocratic offices in the Sinai Covenant, staffed by human representatives. What were those three offices? Prophet, priest, king. Very good. Very good. Prophet, priest, and king. The job description of the priest was to represent the people to God via mediation and sacrifice. The prophet spoke for God to the people, essentially as Yahweh's messenger to his vassal nation. And the king's job was to keep the people of Israel on track in their adherence to the covenant and to live his life as the ideal covenant-keeping Israelite. Now here's a question for you. Which of these three offices was the most powerful? You got one in three there. What do you think? What was the most powerful? I think most people would probably say the king, right? It wasn't the king, it was the prophet. That's right. Why? Because the prophet spoke for God. When the king needed something, he went to the prophet. What does God say about this, you know? His job was to speak for Yahweh. He held the ultimate authority. Now, I bring that up to say this. None of these people, prophet, priest, or king, are ever, in the Scripture, called Elohim. These are the highest offices. They're never called the Elohim. And neither were the judges. 
You know, if any of God's representatives that he's saying here, they're, Israel's, they're God's representatives. If God's representatives were going to be called Elohim, it would be a prophet, priest, or king, not judges. And it's used of none of them. So I think that's just a, it's a bad argument. Now, D.A. Carson writes this. Although this much is clear, uncertainty abounds as to the identity of those who God is addressing in Psalm 82. So you see, everybody's arguing about this. They, who is he really talking about here? And then he says the chief options are, number one, God is addressing Israel's judges who are corrupting justice in the courts of the land. They are called gods because to exercise justice is fundamentally a divine prerogative vouchsafed to certain individuals. So he says, well, okay, you know, there's, there's arguments on this, but it's probably, you know, the judges he's talking about. Well, notice his proof text there. All right, Deuteronomy 1.17. Well, let's look at his proof text. In this text, Yahweh is talking to Israel's judges. We got, we're going to look at verse 17. But verse 16, the judges are from, the word judges is found in 16, and it's from the Hebrew word shafat, and it means to judge. And to the judges, Yahweh says this, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. Okay, so that's what he's going to launch from there. The judgment is God's. And the, case is, and the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. So it tells us that the judges are to judge for Elohim, but the judges are not called Elohim. They're men who are representing Elohim for the people. But he's saying, well, it says here the judgment is God, so therefore that makes judges Elohim. Nowhere in the Hebrew Bible are judges appointed by Moses called Elohim. The Faith Life Study Bible, which is a little disappointing, what they say here, you are God's, a quotation of Psalm 82, 6, which refers either to the divine counsel or to human judges as God's representative administering justice on earth. So they they got swept along with that, which is surprising to me because they're usually pretty good on this subject. Hall Harris writes this, trying to show you that this is predominantly the view. The psalm was understood in rabbinic circles as an attack on unjust judges, who though they have been given the title gods because of their quasi-divine function of exercising judgment, they will die just like other men. Well, no kidding. How else, if these, if, if psalm 82 is talking about men, and God says, you'll die like men. Uh, yeah, how else do men die? It just doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense there, okay? And notice he says, the psalm was understood in rabbinic circles as an attack on unjust judges. Really? Be, be leery of people when they say, well, here's what the rabbis say. You've got to ask what rabbis and what time period, okay? And this view was held by the rabbis, it wasn't held by the rabbis until the 10th century A.D. There were some rabbis who held this. But, you know, saying the rabbis believe this is like saying Christian preachers say this. What? Every different view you can imagine is said by them, okay? Same with the rabbis. John MacArthur writes this. Jesus says corrupt judges were called gods, maybe sarcastically, maybe ironically. But the word was used for them because they received the word of God, and they were the instruments of God and the agents of God. So again, he falls right in line there with everybody because he denies divine plurality. Gotquestions.org says this. Psalm 82.1 says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. It is clear from the next three verses that the word gods refers to magistrates, judges, and other people who hold positions of authority 
and rule. I don't think it's clear at all that it's saying that. But here's the thing. A lot of these people, as a proof text that Psalm 82 is talking about human judges, they'll offer verses like these. 2 Chronicles 19, 4-7. Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem, and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to Yahweh, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified city of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, and again, he's talking to the judges now, he's appointing these judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for Yahweh. There's no question about that, but that's no reason to say that they are gods. They're called Elohim, they're not. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of Yahweh be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with Yahweh, our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So Judges in verse 6 is from the Hebrew Shaphat. These judges were to judge for Yahweh, but the word Elohim is used in these verses of Yahweh, but it's never used of judges. Men are never in Scripture called Elohim. These men are to judge for Elohim, but they are not Elohim. You know, if men were called Elohim, why would they want to kill Jesus because he called himself Elohim? said, I'm equal with God. Why would they want to kill him? Oh, yeah, everybody is. You know, that's just a word for men. See, these judges are rendering decisions for the nation Israel, not to the nations of the world, as is the case in Psalm 82. Psalm 82, these gods are judges over the nations. He's talking about judges over Israel. Michael Heiser, explaining the human view, the non-divine view, says this. Scholars will say, we know that Jesus is quoting Psalm 82.6, and that technically isn't in the Law of Moses. It's not in the Torah, the Pentateuch. Do you think maybe Yeshua knew that wasn't in the Pentateuch? Did he make a mistake? Oh, what was that verse? I said law. No, that wasn't. No. No, I don't think he's making a mistake here, okay? So when Yeshua says it's not written in your law, even though he's quoting Psalm 82.6, Yeshua is probably connecting that thought with something in the Torah. So they're saying, well, he said law, but, and that's what he meant, so he, it was a mistake quoting Psalm 82.6, because he's referring to something else. And, and that something is probably Exodus 18. I mean, this is a really convoluted argument, okay? You're saying Yeshua didn't even know what he was talking about? I think he did, all right? Well, let's look at Psalm 18, and it's a little lengthy here, but hang with me to see if it makes any sense, all right? Exodus, sorry, Exodus 18. What did I say? Oh, forget it. Don't do that. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. <clears throat> now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Again, Yahweh is greater than what? If that's men, he's greater than all men. This doesn't make any sense. Jethro is saying that Yahweh is the greatest of all gods. Greater than all the other Elohim. He's saying that Yahweh is greater than all human judges. No, that makes no sense at all. Everybody knows that. He's saying that Yahweh is the greater than all other Elohim. All other spirit beings. Exodus 18, 13-17. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. Moses is judging. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, all 
and all the people stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, Elohim. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I'll give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their case to God. Moreover, look for able men from the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such over the people as chiefs. Wouldn't you love it if this was a qualification for our judges? The main thing being there, they hate a bribe. I mean, our government is run by bribes. Of thousands, he says, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but the smaller matters they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and they judged the people at all times. And hard cases they brought to Moses, but the small matters they decided themselves. So in Exodus 18, Moses appointing judges who will later become the, the Jewish elders, and they're to judge the people. Now, <laughs> I hope maybe you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Psalm 82? I have no idea. I don't know why they, you know, it talks about appointing judges, and so they're so hung up on the fact that Psalm 82 is talking about judges, they're trying to merge this somehow into that. You know, there's nothing in Psalm 82 about Exodus 18. But here's how their argument goes. It's built around verse 15 here. Because the people come to me to inquire of Yahweh. All right. Heiser explains their argument this way. So the logic here is that when Moses said earlier in the chapter that people come to ask questions of God and they're really asking me and I give them answers, the logic is when Moses appoints these people, these elders, to judge the people, then that basically means that when they come to the judges, they're coming to Elohim as well. So the judges are sort of viewed as Elohim. And then we take that back to Psalm 82 and we say the Elohim in Psalm 82 are those just people. He says, the Israelite judges from way back in Exodus 18. So they're just saying, well, that, he's talking about, when he says they're judging the people, that's what he's talking about, because Exodus 18 talked about judges, setting up judges. Now, if you're thinking, what a strange, convoluted hermeneutic, I agree with you. And it is. It's, really, it's just crazy. Judges are the only common denominator in both of them, and judges should not even be in Psalm 82, because the word's not there. So, but the people, again, who deny divine plurality can't have Elohim mean God. These human judges are appointed in Exodus 18, are never called Elohim in Exodus or anywhere else. Nowhere in Scripture are human judges called Elohim. Now, a similar view along this same line is that the gods referred to in Psalm 82 are Israelites in general. Now, this is getting even broader. Everybody's, everybody's a God, I guess, okay? The commentators will say, to whom the word of God came, that's a reference to giving of the law, 
of the Israelites at Sinai. Therefore, the gods are the Israelites. But again, what does Psalm 82 have to do with the events of Sinai? Nothing. There's nothing in the psalm that points to the gathering at Sinai. This human view that says the gods of Psalm 82 are Israelite judges or Israelites in general, this is the predominant view today. Now here's the problem. It's the predominant view today. But to a second temple Jew, a Hebrew, he would have believed in divine plurality. All right? Psalm 82 was talking about gods and not men, and they knew that. Let me give you another quote from Heiser that's really important here. Heiser had a PhD in the Hebraic Bible. He he was his Heiser's wheelhouse was ancient Semitic languages. Okay, he could speak and write over twelve different languages. Uh, so this is his wheelhouse. This is where he's. I disagree with Heiser on some things, but this is definitely his wheelhouse. This is where he's strong. And this quote of his I gave you a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to hang on to this and see what he's actually saying here by this. Okay. He says, 99% of Second Temple Judaism believed, and by this he's quoting their their writings, the writings of Second Temple Judaism, this is what we see in there, believed that the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not an extension and is in large part not even linked to what happened with Adam and Eve, but the reason the people are always and universally thoroughly wicked is because of the watchers. Now who are the watchers? They're gods, okay? They're gods from from Genesis 6. So, obviously, Second Temple Judaism had a strong belief in other gods. Everybody in Paul's circle, I don't think Heiser is using hyperbole here, okay? Everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references in intertestamental literature, everything says that the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers, everything. So Second Temple Judaism, which, listen, here's what you got to understand this. Second Temple Judaism is the context of the New Testament. You know, we always talk about context. Context is so important. Context, well, this is the context of the New Testament. This is the world they lived in. Every, they all believed in divine plurality. They believed that those other gods, the watchers, and the reason the world was so wicked was because of them. So if you read Second Temple literature, it is filled with plurality. Uh, Second Temple literature is often called the Pseudepigrapha. You've heard of that. It refers to the books that are written by the Jews between Malachi, the last book of the Bible, and then between that and Yeshua's time. During that time period, we have the Second Temple literature that was written. All right. Now, in case you think that these writings have no importance to us, and many believers hold that. Oh, those are, those are just writings. They don't have anything to do with us. Let me read you a passage from the Lexham Bible Dictionary that hopefully will change that view of yours. Although they're called Old Testament pseudepigrapha, these texts are important for New Testament scholarship as well because the books of the New Testament were not written in isolation from the history, literature, and culture of the time. Again, this is the context of the Bible. The people who wrote the New Testament, this was their culture. These were the writings they had. This is what they held to. It goes on to say, in fact, New Testament authors were familiar with portions of this literature. For example, the Epistle of Jude contains references to two writings from the Pseudepigrapha, 1 Enoch and the Testament of Moses. 2 Peter, which was written after Jude and borrows many elements from Jude, alludes to the Pseudepigrapha, but without explicit reference. 
This relates directly to issues in canon development and hermeneutics. All right, he's saying these, these, play, these writings play a big part on canon development and hermeneutics, offering a glimpse into the New Testament world's use of sources outside of Scripture. So Second Temple non-canonical Jewish texts illustrate the ancient tradition of understanding the interpretation of God's as the nations, as real spirit beings over those nations. These are real things. Now, the book of Jubilees, a pseudepigraphal writing, sometimes called the Lesser Genesis, it's an ancient Jewish apocalyptic text. It was known to the early Christians <clears throat> as is evidenced by the writings. You know, Justin, Justin Martyr mentions it, Origen mentions it. As many as ten of the early church fathers quote Jubilees in their writings, at least ten of them. The text is also utilized by the community that collected the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it's found there too. So they, they quoted, they used these writings, they understood this, this was their belief. Look at Jubilees 15, 35, and 36. It says, These are many nations and many people, and they all belong to Him, referring to Yahweh. But over all of them He caused spirits to rule. This is what we talked about in the Tower of Babel, okay? And so they might lead them astray from following him. But over Israel, he did not cause any angel or spirit to rule because he alone is their ruler and he will protect them. So we see in their writings, they believed in these other gods, clearly. Now, Second Temple Literature, 11Q Melchizedek, used Psalm 82 to talk about the judgment of the gods. Uh, this translation is from Garcia Martinez. Uh, it's called the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition of 11Q Melchizedek. This 11Q Melchizedek was found in the caves at Qumran, all right? He says, It is the time for the year of grace of Melchizedek and of his armies and the nation of the holy ones of God of the rule of judgment as is written about him in the song of David who said in Psalm 82.1, Elohim will stand in the assembly of God in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. So the writer of 11Q Melchizedek associates Melchizedek with being Christ. The writer of Hebrews does this in Hebrews 7. So it is Christ who's standing in the assembly of God in the midst of the gods judging them. Now, no Israelite would have been thinking of Psalm 82 talking about human judges or Israelites. No, they would not have. It just wasn't, didn't fit with the literature. No, it wasn't their understanding. So an argument that is often raised against divine plurality, uh, people will use verses like this in Deuteronomy 32-39. See now that I, even I, am He. There is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now hang on to that thought. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. He says, there's no God beside me. Then he says this, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Now, I am Yahweh and there is no other, was an ancient biblical slogan of incomparability of sovereignty, not exclusivity of existence. It's a way of saying that certain authority was the most powerful compared to all other authorities. It did not mean there was no other authorities that existed. It just meant this is the most powerful of authorities. We see the same phrase used in Isaiah 47, 8. Now therefore hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Here, 
This, the ruling power of Babylon is proudly proclaiming in her heart, I am and there is no one beside me. So the power of Babylon is not saying there's no other powers, there's no other cities beside me that exist. But she is saying she is the ruling power. Yahweh uses the phrase, I am Yahweh and there is no other, not to deny the existence of other gods, but to express His absolute sovereignty over them. Yahweh is the Lord of Lords and God of Gods, Lord of Lords. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So He is Yahweh, your God. He's the God of Gods. He's the Lord of... He's over all of them. Now, notice Yeshua's argument. If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, the Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blasphemy because I said, I'm the Son of God? Now he says, if He called them gods to whom the Word of God came. A lot of people want to take this as a reference to the Israelites receiving the law at Sinai. I think this is clearly about Yeshua's Word of judgment coming to these lesser gods. It's what's happening in Psalm 82. He's there pronouncing you're going to be judged for your, your evil ways. That's what he's talking about, not Israel getting the law. He's reminding his Jewish opponents that the Scriptures, their own law, actually teaches this idea there are other divine beings that are called God. They're equal in the sense that they're spirit beings. They're all in the spirit world. They're not mere humans. But he's affirming the divine view of Psalm 82. There are other gods. Now he says the scripture cannot be broken. This means made invalid or subverted. The word broken here is luo in the Greek. And luo means dismissed, dissolved, removed, annihilated, eliminated. So what our Lord is saying is scripture can't be changed. Listen, this is what God said. They're going to be judged. This does not get changed. This does not get modified. They are gods and they will be judged as gods. Now, and then he says, I said, I am the son of God. Now the Hebrews, first century Christians, the early church leaders, they all understood the term Son of God here, which is in the Hebrew, Ben Elohim. Or in the, it speaks of beings in the spirit realm. In fact, the term Elohim is never used in Scripture to speak of beings except those who are in the spirit world. We, I keep saying that over and over. I want you to get it, okay? Now, Son of God is a title that unambiguously claims deity. Son of God means He is God. And that's what He's saying. I'm God. He's trying to defend His deity in this chapter. All right, John 15, I mean, John 5, 18, He says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, notice what that means, making Himself equal with God. Well, Yeshua is equal with God, because He is God. Now, is Yeshua saying here, okay, it's okay if I call myself God, because Yahweh calls other men God. Is that His argument? How in the world would that support His claim to deity? Well, you call the judges in Psalm 82 God, so that, well, it's not wrong for me to call myself God. Is He backing away from His claim to deity? Not at all. In verse 38, He follows it by saying, the Father is in me, and I in the Father. John MacArthur writes this, This passage itself in Psalm 82 has no connection to his deity. No connection at all. Why is he quoting it? In an argument about his deity, why does he quote this? But he uses that word gods to make a point 
from the lesser to the greater, as very often rabbis did and he did. Now, those who hold the human view say that Yeshua's argument is this. If corrupt leaders in Israel who are mere mortals can be given the title gods in Scripture when they serve in the duties of God's representative, in other words, if they're being judges, they're carrying out that duty, they can be called gods. How can they bring charges of blasphemy against Him when it is in His position as the consecrated envoy of Yahweh that He calls Himself a Son of God? They're judges, they're called Elohim because they're serving God. Well, what about Him? Who's He serving? He's serving the Father. He's from the Father. They claim that Yeshua is using an a fortiori argument, which is an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, he's, they say He's saying, well, if men can be called gods because of their position as judges, then how much more should I whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, be called the Son of God. You call them gods, why can't I be called a god too? That's not a very convincing argument, if that were our Lord's argument, because after they're accusing Him of claiming deity, all right, not just simply He's one of God's, one of these many servants of God, He is claiming to be God. He says in, in verse 35 there about He's being, con- He said, the Father consecrated and sent me into the world. The word consecrated is an interesting choice of words considered that the feast that people are celebrating. Let's go back up in John to 10.22. He says, at that time the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> the people are celebrating the rededication of the temple in this feast. The word consecrated means to set apart as holy. Yeshua, God the Son, is set apart by God the Father to consecrate the world to the truth. This is the feast that celebrates the consecration of the second temple, the old sanctuary, the one that's to be replaced by the new and consecrated temple that is literally Christ Himself. So Christ is becoming the new temple. God consecrated and put Him in there, but they're celebrating, a, they're celebrating a feast at this time that celebrates the temple. And here is the temple with them, and they're missing everything about it. Now, if the gods in Psalm 82 were merely human judges and not divine beings, then Yeshua's appeal to this text to defend His claim to deity really would make no sense. I mean, they certainly would not seek to stone Him as a blasphemer if He appealed to the text about human judges. Why do that? Yeshua seems to be rebuking the Jews for allowing they, they allowed the existence of Elohim other than the Father, but they would not accept His claim to be an Elohim. That's the argument here. Well, you know you believe in other Elohim, so why is it a problem if I claim that? John 10, 37 and 38 says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. All right, so he's talking about the works. Just, Just believe the works. Because the works that Yeshua did authenticated His mission in the eyes of the people. When you claim to be deity, and then you raise the dead, you heal the sick, you give the lame the ability to walk again, that says something. You know, they should be thinking, okay, only God can do this kind of stuff, so this, this guy must be God. He must be definitely more than man. Then He says this, the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Now, This is an important verse here because it has a specific Old Covenant antecedent and that's found in Exodus 2. Follow me here. Exodus 23, 20-21 says this, Behold, I send an angel before you. He's talking to the children of Israel. They're coming out of Egypt. 
to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. That's interesting. God says, you better obey this angel. Okay, you do this angel tells you. Then he says, do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. Since when did an angel have the power to pardon people's transgression? That's a, that's a thing assigned only to God. But the angel, he says, he'll not pardon your transgression. Then he says this, my name is in him. What does that mean? My name is in him. The four letters, the yod heh vav are in the angel. Well, <clears throat> the Hebrew word for name is Shem. This comes from Neshema, which we see in Exodus 2.7. Yahweh God formed a man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. The word breath here, Neshema. Your Shem is your breath. In Hebraic thought, your breath is your character. It's what makes you you. It's what makes you different from everybody else. You can replace the word name in the Bible with the word character. Now, in Hebraic thought, a name is not merely an arbitrary designation of random combination of sounds. The name conveys the nature and essence of the thing named. It represents the history and reputation of the being. In English, we like to refer to a person's reputation as his good name. What do you mean? Oh, Joe's, that's a really good name. No, that's not what they mean. They're talking about his character. All right? The Hebrew concept of a name is very similar to that idea. So in Exodus 23:21, when he says, My name is in him, he is saying, My character, my essence is in the angel. Hang on to that. Leviticus 11.45 I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Who delivered them from Egypt? It's not a trick question. Yahweh, right? That's what it says. Does it say that? Okay. Look at this. Judges 2.1 Now the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Okay, who delivered them from Egypt? Was it Yahweh or was it the angel of Yahweh? Yes. Yes. Okay, yes. Let's make it more complicated. Jude 1.5 Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Yeshua, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, who saved the people out of Egypt and then destroyed the unbelievers? Well, we just saw that it was Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh, didn't we? The New English Translation note states this about Jude. The reading Jesus, Jesus is deemed too hard by several scholars since it involves the notion that Jesus acting in the early history of the nation Israel. However, not only does this reading enjoy the strongest support from the variety of early witnesses, but the plethora of variants demonstrate that scribes were uncomfortable with it, for they seemed to exchange kurios, Lord, or theos, God, for Jesus. And he says, through P72, that's a manuscript. These manuscripts are numbered, named. P72 is a manuscript. says, has the intriguing reading, theos, Christos. God, Christ, for Jesus. As difficulty as the reading Jesus is, in light of Jude 1.4, and in light of the progress of Revelation, Jude being one of the last books in the New Testament to be composed, it is wholly appropriate. Okay, so here's the question again. 
Who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt? Was it Yahweh? Was it the angel of Yahweh? Was it Yeshua? Yes. Yes. Okay. You say, well, how can it be all of them? The Father said, I am in him. Okay. My name is in him. He is in the angel. God is the angel. This is how the Tanakh says, this is God in human form. All right. Now, if we take this back to John 10, where Yeshua says, I and the Father are one, and he says, the Father is in me, I in the Father. Yeshua is telling them, I'm God in human form. I'm not only Elohim, a spirit being, I'm the Lord of the council. I'm the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The Father is the Lord of the council and the Father is in me. They understood what he is saying. And so it says, and they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. How does the human view explain the reaction of the Jewish audience here? They're trying to arrest him on the heels of picking up stones to stone him in 1030. If Yeshua is citing a text that all of them could just as well cite on their own behalf as for being sons of God, why would Yeshua's use of this elicit such a response? Why are they so upset that he's claiming to be God? Remember the context here. The deity of Christ. He quotes Psalm 82.6 to support his claim for deity. How could he defend his deity from this psalm if this psalm is talking about human judges? That makes no sense. If the gods in Psalm 82 are merely human judges and not divine beings, then Yeshua's appeal to this text to defend his claim to deity would be kind of stupid, really, you know? That's human judges. How, why does he throw this in the conversation about deity? Listen, Psalm 82 supports the deity of Christ, and the deity of Christ supports Psalm 82 being about divine plurality. They literally work together. He's using this psalm to support his deity, which means Psalm 82 is supporting the deity of Christ. So it has to be talking about gods, not men. Now listen, whether you like it or not, the Bible teaches divine plurality. The Second Temple literature strongly supports divine plurality. The Second Temple literature is the context of the New Testament. These writings are significant for the interpretation of the New Testament as they bear witness to the historical, literary, and theological content of the apostolic writings. If we don't try to put ourselves in the context of the original readers of Scripture, we can very easily read our own culture into that passage and reach wrong conclusions about what it meant to the author and therefore what it means to us. Okay, so we have to understand this, that, you know, when he talks in Psalm 82 about gods, that's, what they, that's how they would have understood it. That was their culture. No, make no doubt about it. And again, you come to John 10 and he's, I'm going to support my deity in this passage. I don't think anybody disagrees that's what he's doing in this passage, but then why quote a passage from Psalm 86 if it's talking about gods. And why would God say, you're going to die like men? In other words, He's going to take their immortality away from them because they're going to die because they're being unjust judges. Now this might be a different view of Scripture than you're used to, but I would just encourage you and challenge you. Go through and look at these passages that talk about plurality. There's a plethora of gods. God, it's, the difference between this the biblical teaching and what the other nations around them believe. In the other nations, there was always a whole bunch of gods and they were always fighting each other to try to get to the top. Okay? 
you're all familiar with Baal. Baal's the Canaanite god he's talked about all the time. Baal was number two god, okay? He was the number two. He wasn't the top god, all right? But he was the one mentioned most. But they're always fighting to be top. That doesn't happen in this pantheon, okay? Yahweh is at the top, and he's there. He created these other gods. He controls these other gods. He rules over everything. So it's a very different picture than what we get from the other nations. But we see very similar things in the other nations because, remember, they all came from the same place. They were all one language, one people, until the Tower of Babel. And when they left, they carried their stories with them. Same story, they just in different languages and now changing what they're talking about. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I just ask you to give us the spirit of Bereans that before we reject something and before we even accept something, we would see if it's so by digging through the scriptures. Lord, help us to just go to the scriptures themselves and compare scripture with scripture to see if these things are true. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions. Kathy, can you bring me my phone? Unless you want to just read questions for me. Thank you, ma'am. Questions, comments? All right, uh, basically they're saying I've been in and out of a lot of churches in my life. They use commentaries, various authors, Bible study, many different catechisms to help understand the Bible. I cannot recall the pseudopicker for ever being recommended to help understand. What is the church trying to hide from a people? Just a comment. I don't know that they're trying to hide anything. I, I just think they don't even know what a pseudopicker for is today. I mean, they really don't. They probably never even heard of it. What is it? Well, there's other writings, you know. Well... Let me just make a distinction here. Old Covenant pseudepigrapha, this is what we're talking about. The New, Co- the New Testament pseudepigrapha, they're usually, they're just kind of whacked out stories for the most part, okay? So you got you to gotta nail this down so you understand what's... But again, here's the issue. If the New Testament writers are using this material, if the people at that time are believing this material, these are the, this is their literature of the day, that affects the New Testament. And so it was used. I do not think the pseudepigrapha is inspired. Let me make that clear. Didn't need to be inspired. It was their writings, what they believed. These people were using that. They were using it and quoting it at times because I guess that was that made it inspired, what they said. Gary? Well, in my limited understanding uh, in previous years with comments about other gods, I always assumed they were talking about all these other gods Right, I get that. that. I think a lot of people think that way. Okay, there's, there's no such God, there's just an idol. But what is an idol? It's a representation of that God. That's what it is. They can't see that God, so they build a representation. It represents that God. Why, why does Christianity in, in Old Covenant Israel, why do they have no idols? What represented God? The people. We were God's representatives, Okay. So we don't build some you know, little idol over here and say that's worshiping God. And he makes fun of these idols because your gods aren't doing you a lot of good. If you get in trouble, you've got to pick up your God and carry it and run with it. You know, That's not helpful. 
How's that God helping you? He says, you cut a log in half and you build, take half of it and you build a God, you take the other half and you warm yourself. What the heck? You know, that doesn't make any sense. But there were gods behind these things, okay? That's the thing that most people don't understand. But that, I think that is a belief of a lot of people. Well, the idols are nothing, okay? Right. Right. And I agree, and, and that is true. You know, we shouldn't be putting other things before God. But when God says, you shall have no other, he didn't say, you shall have nothing before me. You shouldn't put anything in front of me. He said, you shall have no other gods in front of me. And, and he was not using that metaphorically, okay? He was talking about real gods that he had created. And again, if you understand Deuteronomy 32, you know, he took these gods and gave them to the nations because he was done with them. And he started over with Israel for his own. But these gods were real gods, and that's why Psalm 82 talks about judging these gods. Andrew? Uh, most of the pseudepigrapha that you quoted today are in the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha is in the Septuagint. And the church has always had these books in their Bible. Right, the, the Catholic, Catholic Church. The Catholic Church. Right. Because that's the original Bible that the church has always had in the Septuagint. Yes, a lot of church, like the Eastern Orthodox, a lot of this is in their Bible. Okay, it's not it's not considered pseudepigrapha. It it's just now I, I don't think Enoch is should be part of scripture because he contradicts scripture in places, and that's why I say I'll go with scripture over them. But we still learn a lot from them. Okay, we learn on how this other people thought, and you don't think they believed in other gods. You just read some of this stuff, and you'll see they definitely believe in other gods. Okay. I got a question. I'm not even going to read or answer because it's two pages long, and so you know, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't. I'll read it later, maybe. Anybody else? Any other questions? No. Can you can you just explain real quick why? Probably not. Why he quotes Psalm 82, like he's saying, "I am the God above all of these other gods." Is that what he's saying? No, I think that, you know, they're trying to say, you know, they want to kill him because he's claiming deity. And he said, well, I'm not the only Elohim. There's, there are other gods. And so he quotes somebody, too, that talks about the gods and say, how come you want to stone me for claiming Elohim when you believe in other Elohim? That was his point, okay? Now, the fact that he was the god of gods, I don't know that they, they certainly didn't understand that, but he's saying, you believe in this stuff, so why are you wanting to kill me because I'm claiming these things? And backing it up with the things I do. That's that's my listen. I am not believe me. This John ten is a difficult text. There's no doubt it's a difficult text. But it, it's it's more difficult if you believe in divine plurality. Because if you don't believe in it, then you just say there's no God. So this has to be talking about men. But as as I read, most of these guys will show you there's a conflict there. They they don't understand which view to hold because they're it doesn't make sense that he's talking about men in that text. I think understanding divine plurality will change your mind on a lot of things. <laughs> oh my. That's uh, JP from Oregon. Any progress on the more copies of the book you wrote that you didn't write? <laughs> well... I always say I haven't written a book because I don't know what I believe yet, okay? I want to make sure I believe something before I wrote it. Well, I sat down and read the book that I didn't write, and I made some corrections because I've 
you know, I don't believe that in my own belief. And I added another chapter to it. So it's 10 chapters now. It's all finished. It's ready to go. I'm just waiting on someone. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for the cover to get done. Once the cover's done, it's going to go to, I'm shooting it to Amazon and, you know, should be ready shortly. I don't think Amazon takes very long, although I've never published before. But it's, I've read through it. It seems like it's pretty simple. But I will let you know as soon as it's done. Okay. If you, if you have it Jeff's sound number, like you didn't write it. If you have Jeff, yes, <laughs> yeah. and I did write it. You okay? didn't create it. I didn't put it together, but I did write it. Okay? It's all my, it's all my material that, that was taken and, and yeah, and put into a book form. Can we get signed copies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did it end for these gods in AD 70? Were there good ones? Yeah, that's a good question. That comes up a lot. In AD 70, the gods were judged, okay? I think that's very clear throughout Scripture. Matthew 24, verse 29, talks about the stars falling from the heavens. That's dealing with the gods. These gods were judged in AD 70. It wasn't just an earthly judgment on Jerusalem. The gods that were above, that were running all this corruption, they were judged Earthly powers were judged. And then the question is here, were there good ones? Yes. I believe, I don't think all the gods rebelled and left heaven. Okay, there was a group of them we know that did that. There were a group of evil, but I don't think they, I don't see any indication where they all rebelled, and there still was some good ones. So, yeah, I think they'll be part of the family, okay, with us, those good gods. All right? That's, again, the Scripture really doesn't, really doesn't give us any indication of that. Your thoughts on Jesus teaching us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Does that qualify for us stoning also? Thank you for your challenge message week after week. Our Father who art in heaven. Does that count qualify for us stoning also? We I don't call because we call him our Father as Jesus oh, okay. called him our Father. Okay, I do. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I got it now. I got it. Okay. We're calling God Father. You know, yeah, I mean, they call God your Father is to be a son, and we are sons of God. Okay? We are sons of God. Not in the sense they are, but now we are partakers of the divine nature, and we are sons of God. So I guess that could qualify us for stoning, but people don't understand that they were even supposed to do that. So I don't think we have to worry too much about it. Israel really fell away from that too. They didn't carry that out like they should. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Your understanding of the Scriptures has been such a huge blessing on my life. All glory and praise to Yahweh. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad I could help. Is Psalm 82 Elohim... In Psalm 82, Elohim are called judges. No, they're not. That's the whole point here. Yes, there's, there's translations that say that, but there's no justification for translating the Hebrew word Elohim, which is plural for God. Elohim, and I am ending, makes it plural, but it's, it's a morphological plural, so it's used as a singular, okay? And we have to understand that though they're called that because they didn't understand. You know, so the translators go, you know, as I showed, thought I showed in this time, most of the translators, most people think it's human judges, so they translate it as judges. It's not. You can't show me. Look up the 2,600 and some uses of Elohim and show me where it's judges. Over 2,000 is used for Yahweh. 
and the other of them are used for different gods, some for demons, and we went all into that last week. So I would just challenge you to look into that. You know, just because someone says Elohim can be used as judges, it's not. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for this teaching. Do you believe then when the gods were judged in AD 70, they lost their immortality? They no longer exist. Yes, I do believe that. And that's what he says, you will die like men. That's what he means. You're thrown in the lake of fire. We see that. And that burned up. Done. Okay? So they don't exist. I'm just wondering why Satanists, Luciferists today worship gods that do not exist. Well, I've mentioned this many times, but if you talk to a Satanist, they don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in it. It's just, this is what they do. This is a, a cult, something they belong to. They don't need a superior being. Men are evil, and they just do this stuff. All right? Well, even, even, even the Satanic Bible, it's not about Satan. It's about do what you will. Right. It's, it's about man. Right. The Satanic Bible, as Jeff said, is about man. It's not about you know worshiping some god or deity up there. Alistair, Alistair Crowley did not believe in Satan. Okay? He didn't believe in it. It just was a thing. They don't, they don't have to have a deity. You know, they're just evil people and they're doing evil things and that's... But people think, well, there must be a God if they're worshiping. No, not really. Mike Sullivan says, Jesus is saying in John 10 that He is God of gods who would judge the gods in the 10th Jubilee per 11Q Melchizedek in Psalm 82. And he did in AD 70 with those wicked men who were denying his deity. Amen. Amen. Like I said, it, it, there's a lot of things that tie this together if you're familiar with Scripture. In verse 2 it says, How long will you judge unjustly? Well, that's right, because these gods were judging unjustly the people that were put in their care. They were wicked judges. That is why... Wicked, they were they were Elohim, they were gods, but they were judging wickedly. Alright? Judging is an action, it's not who they are. Junior says, You made it very clear. Thank you for a great message. What will be the next book that we will study? We're going to be studying First Peter. Okay. Yeah, my wife keeps saying, well, are you starting first Peter? I planned on starting it today, but then I got questions on this, and I said, i got to deal with that, okay? I'm, you know, the questions that come in help me understand where you're at, what you're understanding, what I need to try to communicate. Uh, so I'm going to send you a question. Why don't we start with first Peter? <laughs> <laughs> He's going to do a sermon next week on it. And I'm going to say soon. That means next week. Someone says, love the teaching on the Trinity. You know, there's a lot of attack today on the Trinity among predators. Okay? And I think it's a big problem. Okay? Well, the word's not in Scripture. That's the stupidest argument I've ever heard. Okay? Listen. If you destroy the Trinity, you destroy the deity of Christ. If you destroy the deity of Christ, you're done. you got nothing. Okay? Because if Yeshua is not God, you're dead in your sins. Simple as that. Okay? And that's a hill. Listen. I'm, I'll die on Okay? I'll just die on But people want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Okay? And just... No, you can't do that, all right? And like I said, the, the Jews were monolatrous. They believed in one God. They, they worshiped one God. They believed in many gods. So it doesn't go against them at all. Good morning, Dave and fellow believers. What is your conviction on the lake of fire? Okay, I, I do not believe in hell, okay? As a, I don't believe hell should be in your Bible. If you have hell in your Bible, it's a bad translation. 
Gehana is the Greek word that's translated hell. Gehana means national judgment. That's what it refers to. The lake of fire is referring to national judgment. Israel was judged. Israel was destroyed. Israel was burned to the ground. That's what they were thrown into. That was the judgment. They were they were gone. Okay. I know that people say, "Well, it's fire lasts forever and ever." You can find that all through the scriptures, and you know, Sodom, the burning of Sodom and Gomorrah. The smoke shall go up forever and ever. Sodom and Gomorrah is still burning today. The judgment is permanent. That's what it means, forever and ever. It's not the the act of judging is permanent. The judgment is permanent. It happens and it's done. Irreversible. What? Irreversible. Yes. Uh, irreversible judgment. Okay. But uh, you know, and again, we have plenty of message. If this is new to you. I would encourage you to go and look at, uh, on the website. Just go to our website and type in hell, and it'll bring up all the messages we've talked about that. I think it's an important topic, but I think it's one of those things where translation has messed us up so bad because you see it everywhere in your Bible, bad translations. There's no such concept. You won't find a such concept in the Tanakh. You won't find it in the New Testament. It is talking about national judgment, and God is talking to the Jews when He says that. He's dealing with national judgment.